Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Jason Terry moves it to the middle, caught by Wilcox. Kick out Crawford, extra pass. Jeff Green, corner three. Got it! 41 for Jeff Green. Celtics lead by seven. He can't get it fast enough. Avery Bradley will grab the rebound. The Celtics have turned this thing around on the glass. Minus 19 in Charlotte Tuesday. They're plus 11 right now. Here's a quick three by Pierce. It's good. Jason Terry finds Jeff Green, sliding to the basket, lays it up. Did Chris Bosh foul him or did he goaltend? He goaltended, so give two more to Jeff Green. He's got 43, and the Celtics have a 10-point lead. I'm not really been paying attention to you know anything. I was just in the zone, and just trying to you know, help my team the best way I can. And uh, you know, ball kept going in, so my teammates continued to find. Jeff, what is the feeling you have personally after a game like this? You have a great game. I'm mad we lost. And that you lost. What is that kind of feeling? And now, welcome to the Celtics beat with Daniel Baker. Welcome in, everybody. Happy Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been a just wonderful, wonderful day watching March Madness for me. But today on the Celtics beat, we're getting into NBA talk, talking Celtics. For the next hour, Celtics, the NBA, we're even going to get into some statistics talk for all of you stat heads, everyone who really loves the numbers. We're going to be talking to the authors of a paper that was submitted to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, Matthew Goldman and Justin M. Rao. They wrote a paper called Live by the Three, Die by the Three, the price risk, the, pr- the price of risk in the NBA. And we're going to be talking to those guys a little bit later. And when I say we, my name is Daniel Baker. I will be joined shortly by Mr. Rich Conti. And we'll be talking Celtics, Go take you around the NBA. Obviously, two teams with really, really, really big winning streaks going on, dominating that. But for the Celtics, it's been, well, it's been a rough week for the Celtics. Losers of four straight games. They were feeling really good heading into the game against Miami, and it's really changed since then with a couple losses. And uh, right now, I will be joined by my co-host for the evening, Rich Conti. Rich, how you doing this Sunday afternoon? Hey, Daniel. How are you? Good to be on. <laughs> I'm, do- I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm just... Just said, uh, I've been watching a lot of March Madness this past week, and I don't know about you, my bracket is pretty much shot, but 
today we had maybe two of the best games, and I know this is about the NBA on this show, but it couldn't help but but just really love what was going on between Iowa State and Ohio State, and a couple of future pros on display. Possibly Aaron Crafts, his defense is definitely up there. Not sure if his offensive game, but he had a big shot. And then in the other game, Indiana against Temple, the game from Khalif Wyatt was just sensational, and I'm pretty sure he will be a lottery. He could be a lottery pick. He had maybe the best performance of the NCAA tournament, two straight games with at least 30 points, put on quite a show. Yeah, Kraft really hit a big shot there after uh, you know making a few mistakes down the stretch, but really redeemed himself there at the end. And uh, the Indiana game was tighter than I expected. And, um, you know, if, if there's definitely a, a lottery pick in that, or probably a couple of lottery picks in that game, Victor Oladipo, um, you know, came through at the end. And um, obviously Cody Zeller is going to be um, a lottery pick as well. So it's been an interesting tournament so far. I think everybody's brackets was busted um, by the uh, the end of the first round. And uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, after this year or the past couple of years, um, people should uh, think twice about how they see teams like Georgetown and, and especially UNLV. I think this is the uh, fourth straight year, I believe, that uh, UNLV's lost to a lower seed. And for Georgetown, it's their uh, fourth or fifth straight year losing to a seed at least five spots lower. Um, so so that's not good. They actually kind of busted my bracket. One of them, I did two. I pretty much kept everything the same, but one time I had Georgetown not only in the Final Four, but in the championship game losing to Louisville. And that was partially because I named my bracket Auto Rocket Power. For those of you who are Nickelodeon fans, that was maybe one of the last great <laughs> shows they made. So I kind of felt obliged. If I'm going to name my bracket after their star player, I might as well, you know, might, might, might as well pick him to go pretty far. But I'm sure he's yeah. have a nice career in the NBA. He's kind of ha- has that old school game, kind of like we see. Uh, Paul Pierce, and I'm sure a lot of these guys the Celtics would really want on their team. They've kind of been depleted from injuries, and I think at the moment, switching gears over to the Celtics, it's really catching up to to this team. I think they maybe hit uh, a high point as well as they were going to play without Rondo, and this isn't uh, a overreaction of any kind. I wasn't getting too high when they won a bunch of games in a row without him. They were playing some of the best basketball. I still tempered it with the expectations or maybe a lack of an expectation when the playoffs roll around. How deep can this team really go without a guy like Wanda who really can dominate night in and night out for an entire series? And this past week, four losses after that heartbreaker against Miami. They followed that with another last-second loss. That's to New Orleans, a bottom feeder out west, and then the last two days falling at Dallas and at Memphis, and really just is this team running out of steam, Rich? Is that is that possible? Yeah, I mean, you know, they've been a streaky team all year, and so um, it certainly wouldn't shock me to see them um, all of a sudden run off, you know, six out of seven, seven out of eight. Uh, that the schedule gets a little bit favorable, but. Yeah, I mean, four straight losses. Uh, it's actually six out of the last eight as well. So, you know, they look like a, a tired, beat-up team this week. And, um, you know, the Miami game, um, you know, Miami's still clearly tight when they face the Seas. I mean, you look at Wade's overall game that he had, and, and uh, he threw up an air ball uh, from about five feet down the stretch, you know, mm-hmm. 
Bosch was pretty much, you know, absent that whole game. You know, that was the one game where it looked like, you know, they, they, they came to play despite Garnett being out. They match up pretty well with the Heat, especially when, you know, <laughs> certainly, you know, scoring 43 points. But but if Jeff Green just plays well, I think they, you know, they match up position by position. Um, oh, for sure. They're, the Heat is anybody. They're, they're two teams that really lack size down low on the offensive end and down low just – Guys who make their living scoring in the paint. And Bosch shoots shoots from outside. Essentially, their center. Same with Garnett, although he didn't play. But that's really how the Celtics are constructed. It was a great duel between Jeff Green. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention his career high of 43 points in that game. It was a duel between him and LeBron James. LeBron James had a bit more of an, an all-around game. He got a little bit more of help. And really, down the stretch, the Celtics just made a bunch of critical mistakes but at the same time, you do have to give a lot of credit to LeBron James. He's the best player in the world. He's playing some of his best basketball as the Heat have won 25 games in a row at the moment. And you really just, at some point, have to have to tip your hat. The last second shot he had, just mano a mano, yeah. rose up over green. Nothing you can do. Great offense will be great defense every single time. Yeah, you got to tip your hat to him on that shot, though. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't a great shot. I mean, he pounded the ball for for most of the shot clock, and then just kind of rose up and and took a contested, uh, you know, uh, a jumper. But, you know, if you're the Celtics, that's just the shot you want him taking. And you know, to his credit, he he knocked it down. Man, Jeff Green, you know, that was the guy that that you know we've been kind of hoping to see. I mean, certainly not expecting to see forty point games, you know, on any kind of regular basis. Just the just the aggression and the assertiveness. He played with offensively, and just the level of involvement at both ends was was really what what people were you know really hoping to see. And he hit the nail on the head. You know, down the stretch, the Celtics just made some mistakes. You know, uncharacteristic defensive mistakes, especially missed rotations here and there, and 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 that was the ball game along with some you know unforced errors. And really, they just stopped being aggressive offensively the last you know five or six minutes of the game. And I think, um, you know, clearly Jeff Green needed a blow at the point where, um, where Doc took him out of the game, but he'd been so aggressive all game long that, you know, I think taking him out, giving the ball to Pierce, having him kind of, um, you know, slow down the game, I think really took a little bit of their wins out of their sails. And then when Green came back in, I think, unfortunately, he just kind of reverted to his, you know, his uh, deferential style and, and, you know, let Pierce kind of be the man down the stretch when, man, I would have loved to have seen them get out on the break, try to, you know, you know be a little bit more aggressive offensively, even if it's, you know, not taking time off the clock and just, you know, um, you know take a good shot regardless of when it shows up on the, the shot clock. Uh, it was really interesting talking about just the, the art of the comeback, so to speak, in that game because we're going to be joined again uh, in, in our next segment by a couple authors, they co-wrote a paper at, that was presented at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, and it's actually the third straight year that they've had a paper at that conference. It's going to be Justin Rao and Matt Goldman. Really excited to talk to them. They wrote a paper, Live by the Three, Die by the Three, and it's about just teams and how much they decide to shoot threes, twos, and Throughout the course of a game, do you get uh, that that teams with leads they tend to tighten up, so to speak, and teams that are down really start to play as efficient as they possibly can. 
Um, and so, so we're going to talk to them, and I know that was probably – it did a just terrible injustice to what their paper actually is about. They'll come on and explain with us what the paper really means in layman's terms so I can understand it better, so you can and all our listeners can understand what the heck we're really talking about. And I'm really interested to see how it relates to the Celtics, who are really a jump-shooting team and a team that, for the most part, if they're going to play really well – they're going to have to shoot well from beyond the arc. And, for example, that game against Miami, Jeff Green, who was on fire from behind the arc, the whole team shot really, really well just throughout the game. They built a 13-point lead with about eight minutes left, and then they started to make some mistakes. They tightened up a little bit, so to speak. So we'll, we'll talk to a couple guys who are brilliant minds, a couple guys with PhDs in economics, who loves sports, and I'm pretty excited to talk to them. Yeah, likewise. I'm really looking forward to it. I, um, you know, read the entire paper a couple of times. Um, um, I, you know, I'm certainly uh, no PhD, but I uh, like to think of myself as a bit of a stats geek, and, and I found it really, really fascinating. Um, you know, and like you said, you know, kind of, you know, relate um, a lot of the principles and, and uh, propositions in the paper to, you know, some of the things that we observe with the Celtics, and I think, you know, um, it will be great to talk to these guys and dig into it a little bit more. And we have a Facebook page, so be sure to check that out. We just posted a link to their paper. It's not too long, so definitely give that a read if you have a few minutes of your day. It's really, really interesting. Um, that's on our Facebook page. You can also follow us at Celtics underscore Beat, the name of our show, Celtics Beat. And again, I'm Daniel Baker alongside Rich Conti this afternoon, and the Celtics Right now, just slumping a bit. They've lost four straight games. And, Rich, you mentioned they're, they're such a streaky team. Is there anything in particular b before we head, head to our first break that has really kind of stood out to you in in the four losses combined, just something that the Celtics really aren't doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Miami game, I thought they played well. Obviously, with, with KG out, you know, they made some mistakes down the stretch, but you know, all season long, they seem to be able to, you know, really perform at their best, um, you know, when the competition is, is the stiffest. And then, you know, kind of true to form against New Orleans, you know, classic trap game, especially for this team that seems to be really vulnerable against bad teams. You know, New Orleans gets some talent, but they haven't performed this year. Celtic lost to them. You know, they've lost to um, uh, Charlotte twice during the season. And so, you know, that, you know, it, it certainly wasn't expected, um, but kind of in retrospect, you know, it was one of those trap games and it wasn't altogether surprising. The Dallas loss was the most troubling loss of the week for me in some ways. You know, that's that mm. was kind of the type of game you wanted to see them win on the road to show that, okay, in the playoffs they're going to be able to beat, um, you know, a somewhat, um, you know, decent team in, in, their, in their building. Um, and, you know, they just, you know, were, were kind of climbing uphill all game and, and could never get in the hump. Uh, Terry um, didn't have nearly the type of game that I think a lot of folks thought he would. Um, and then, you know, the Memphis game. I mean, Memphis is a tough team. Yeah, they were missing Marcus All. Um, uh, Zach Randolph, uh, Zach being Zach, I guess, uh, got benched for missing a shoot-around, a big late shoot-around in the morning. But he still, you know, um, you know um, got significant minutes in the game. Celtics were missing KG and Courtney Lee. Um 
you know, we could have, you know, should have expected a kind of a stinker, one of those just, you know, no hope from the start games. And it was turned out to be a little surprising uh, with the comeback at the end, kind of fueled by Terrence Williams and uh, DJ White and, and Jordan Crawford along with uh, Jeff Green. And, man, it would have been nice to win one of those, uh, you know, improbable uh, wins uh, down the stretch <laughs> for, for once. Seems like the Celtics are always on the other side of those. Unfortunately, uh, that really has that, that has been the case. We we saw the Celtics just come up short in a comeback. We saw them blow a lead late, and when we get back, we're going to talk to a couple brilliant minds who will tell you really why teams tend to play so differently in these certain late game situations. Daniel Baker, along with Rich Conti. When we come back, we'll talk to a couple authors who've been published at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference twice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. The Celtics beat returns after this. Hey, Mike Fay from Mike T here, just reminding you about the outstanding shows here on CLNS Radio. Jay King of CelticsTown.com and Ty Ray of CLNS Radio join forces to bring you Celtics Town, King of the Court, every Monday night. If Jeff Green grabs a rebound, run up court with it, just get the ball and work it up the floor and make Tommy Heinsohn proud because I know he loves that style of play. Careless Whispers with Matt Rury and Calvin Chamberlain hits the airwaves Tuesday night. You can't compare that to an NBA rivalry where you're going to hate LeBron James for the next seven years and you've already hated him for five years. Tune in for the block party with CLNS Locker reporter Jared Wise and NHL content manager Lee Herman on Thursday nights. I actually really have high hopes for Chris Bork. I'm not going to no. compare him to Ray. And don't forget to tune into the Celtics postgame show following every single Celtics game. You can find that at CLNS Radio, Celtics Blog, and iTunes. It's invaluable how much Jeff Green means to this team right now if he can continue to play this way. That's not all. There are even more awesome podcasts available. Check them all out on clnsradio.com. Celticsblog.com. Blogging since 2004 and leading an outstanding team of contributors, Jeff Clark is the most distinguished Celtics blogger on the web. Celtics Blog features a team of journalists and locker room reporters that provide Celtics fans the most unique, thoughtful, and in-depth commentary online. There's a bunch of ways to interact with the number one community of Celtics fans, Friday fan posts, fan forums, and the most popular live game chat room. CLNS Radio is proud to be a content partner of Celtics Blog, and Celtics Blog simulcasts the CLNS Celtics postgame show following every single Celtics game. And that's not all. CLNS and Celtics Blog join forces this season to bring you the Garden Report, the only HD postgame show shot live on the parquet floor at TD Garden. Check it all out today at CelticsBlog.com. This is Avery Bradley of the Boston Celtics, and you are listening to ELNS Radio. What's new at CLNSRadio.com? We're striving to make this your first and last destination for all things sports. It all starts with our Celtics postgame show. CLNS is the proud home of the only online postgame broadcast that covers every single Celtics game. Along with Celtics blog, CLNS brings you the Garden Report. It's the only YouTube postgame show recorded on the parquet floor. CLNS Radio's Jared Weiss and Celtics Blog's Jimmy Toscano report on the home games in high definition. And if you subscribe to the CLNS YouTube page, you can find raw post-game videos from the Celtics locker room. 
stay up to date with us and text CLNS fans to 22828 for free updates from CLNS Radio. Don't forget you can call into our live shows at 347-215-7771. And if you miss the live broadcast, you can download us on iTunes. We're getting bigger, we're getting better, and you can find it all at clnsradio.com. clnsradio.com, the home of Internet Sports Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Celtics Beat. My name is Daniel Baker, and I am joined by the wonderful Rich Conti, a great basketball mind, and it's always fun talking Celtics and the NBA with you. And now we are joined by, without further ado, first, I will just give a quick introduction for, for, for each of our upcoming guests. One, his name is Matt Goldman. And he is a Ph.D. economics student from the University of California, San Diego, studying econometric theory and behavioral economics. And also Justin Rowe, who is an economist at Microsoft Research. He received his Ph.D. in economics from UCSD in 2010. But most importantly, they, for the third straight year, have a paper published for the MIT Sloan Sports Analytic Conference, and we welcome them now to talk about their paper, Live by the Three, Die by the Three, The Price of Risk in the NBA. Matt and Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. It's really exciting. So just so everyone's on the same page here, we both really, really liked your your paper, um, again, we published it on. Our, we posted a link to it on our Facebook page and also also via Twitter. So if you haven't read it yet, check it out. But for from the guys who actually wrote it, put it in layman's terms for us. What's the basic premise of what you wrote? Well, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of making a risk reward trade off. Like in the stock market, you might go for a riskier stock that might have a bigger payoff or you might go for a safer stock or a bond that has a smaller payoff. And in the NBA, you have the same thing going on. You have three-pointers, which are riskier. They have a lower chance of success, but a higher payoff. And you have two-pointers, which are safer. And what we're looking at here is over the course of the game, the way the team should make this trade-off is changing. And this should be intuitive to fans on one dimension at least. When the team is behind, especially late in the game, they should start really liking risk. Their risk-return trade-off, tilts toward the risk side of things. They need a big comeback. They need that big swing in points. When the team's ahead, that risk-return trade-off swings towards the safe asset, the safety move, because when you're ahead by a lot late or like five or even five or six late, you want to kind of take your foot off the gas, maybe go for twos a little bit, be a little more conservative. When the game is close, you actually should be basically risk-neutral. You should just care about maximizing points. That's what we find increases your chance of winning the game. So what we do is we look at how NBA players make this decision, and we find something a little something interesting. When teams are behind, yeah, they up the three-point output. The efficiency of three-pointers goes down. They're willing to take a lower reward because they want that risk. Right? If they now value risk, they take a lower reward to get that risk. But when they're leading, we predict they should be shooting fewer three-pointers because now they should not want that risk. They should want safety, but they actually shoot more. They shoot more than when the game is tied. And we find that the frequency of three-pointers 
is lowest when the game is tied, which is actually counterintuitive to what, what we're seeing in terms of the statistics would say, it actually, teams should just care about maximizing points and shouldn't care about risk at all. It should be risk neutral when the game is tied. And let's say the first half, we see that consistently teams shoot the fewest three-pointers in close games, leading us to think what's going on is something psychological. When the game is close, they kind of tighten up. Just like when you're, you know, when you start, when your chip stack dwindles in Vegas or your wallet's empty, you start getting real risk averse. You start hating risk. And we think the same thing happens to players. That's, that's the layman's, like, high-level view of what's going on. <laughs> All right, very interesting. So I was going to ask this concept of of getting tight, and this is something that um, Celtics fans are, um, you know, I guess particularly uh, used to experiencing. As the lead starts to dwindle, the team starts to tighten up. They start to to get a little bit more conservative. And so the the premise Mm -hmm. premise is that they're really at the case of them, you know, not recognizing the the economics of the situation. Yeah, that's that's correct. And what we we think what might be going on is that most people, if you put – just a human being in like a, a risk experiment or in Vegas, most people, when they're close to having $0 in the bank, they're very risk averse because they don't want to go negative. They, they want to maintain that little amount they have. But when you get really rich, you actually get, you don't really care about a little bit of risk, right? You can afford it. Yeah. And so most people, they get, as they get richer and richer, they start taking some chances. And when they get down to zero, they start getting tightening up. That's like the natural human thing to do. Like it makes sense to do that. If you only have 10 bucks, don't, don't, don't don't play don't play blackjack, you know. But in basketball, that's not what you should do. When the lead is dwindling, you need to play like you play. You need to not tighten up because if you tighten up, you might go for them. Low, you might pass up high value opportunities in favor of something that looks safe, but really, yes, it's a little safer. But you're passing up value, and so that's we think it's the yeah. It makes sense when you have ten dollars in your pocket not to gamble, but that's a different decision making. That's a different economic incentive than the basketball game. So. Uh, with what you guys found and all the numbers that you looked at, were you looking at pure numbers? How much was taken into consideration, really the makeup of a team, if you will, uh, taken into consideration? I'm just just throwing the Miami Heat out there right now. Um, obviously, they're doing a pretty good job of balancing that uh, 25 games in a row. But <laughs> like for them, their specific personnel, regardless of the, regardless of the situation in the game, up uh, if they're down late or they're up in, in up in a close game that's winding down. If I have Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, I don't care what the situation is. I want them to be driving to the basket, for example, because they're two of the best in the game at doing that, and they're much more likely. They're not like poor three point shooters or the way that yep. uh, has been that good. But I mean, regardless, I don't think I ever want them taking a three in in a close game if they don't have to. Matt, you want to jump on that one? Well, so there are, I mean, there are, I think the three-point shot in general is sort of an incredibly efficient shot. And if you just look, I mean, you sort of don't want to fall on the type of thing. You sort of deserve the game because you're really good. You know, you sort of have to go out there and you have to earn it. And I think if you look over across teams and across uh, the league, the three-point shot is just a great shot. And on average, when a team shoots a three, that's usually just a more efficient shot than a two-point shot is. Um, and I think that there is a lot of variation across teams and across personnel. And outside of LeBron and Wade, they keep playing all kinds of three-pointers. Our three-point shooters they do a great job of spreading the support. And I think they take a lot of threes a lot of the time because that makes a lot of sense to their roster. Um, and that was definitely one thing we really wanted to control for when we did our analysis. So we did something very careful. Was we only wanted to look at a situation where a certain group of guys were on the court. Like, suppose you're playing LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, you know, Ray Allen, Mike Miller, and not a And we just wanted to look at the behavior of those five guys 
and how that behavior tends to change as the situation of the game changes. So it's really hard for us to say in absolute sense, you, know, you and I can have an argument about whether or not LeBron James is winning ways to shoot a lot of threes, and no one's really going to win that argument. Mm-hmm. The we really can nail down is when those five guys on the court at any given time, we know how their behavior should change when they're ahead or when they're behind. And that's exactly the dynamic Justin's talking about, where the Miami Heat, just like more or less everyone in the league, seems to be making the same kind of mistake, where they just stay shy away from the three-point shot in the post game. Um, yeah, these so, relative situations where they're way up away. <clears throat> yeah, so okay. what I'll add there is that uh, in some sense our analysis uh, kind of punts on an important question, which is, our team shooting enough threes or too many threes overall? And the reason we say we kind of punt on this is what we take five guys on the court playing five other guys, and we just look, like Matt said, at what their three-point usage changes with the margin and the time remaining. We're basically looking at changes. And a lot of times in economics and academics, it's easier to get a prediction on how a variable should change. Like for a stock price, I don't know what the price should be, but I know if it gets riskier, the price should go up because I should require higher returns. But I don't know what the price should be overall because that, that, that's, that's the valuation of the company and all this sort of stuff. But I know if they get riskier, price has to go up. Similar sort of thing going on here. And so, I've, like Matt said, three-pointers across the league offer about point, about 10% more points per shot. They're about 10% more efficient. They're about 0.1 points per shot more than two-pointers. The question is, is that a sign that team should be shooting more or less threes? And, you know, our analysis, we can't really speak to that because – You've mentioned a lot of things. There's a lot of personnel. It's about the marginal three, so we really can't speak to that, which is a, a fundamental limitation of what we do. Yeah, exactly. And it opens up the debate, you know. Mm-hmm. And that marginal three is sort of exactly the problem, right? If you, we want to argue about if the team should shoot more or fewer three-pointers, you know, I know Ray Allen's a great three-point shooter, and the reason he keeps so many points on average when they shoot threes is a lot of the time Ray Allen just happens to be open. But, you know, if the Heat want to generate that one extra three-point shot, it's going to be LeBron James or Dwayne Wade pulling off. And that's obviously not nearly as good a shot, which I think is the point you were making. And mm-hmm. so it's really hard for us to see how valuable those marginal threes are when they're kind of lumped in there with all the other open threes by Ray Allen and everybody else. And, you know, you described the uh, trailing team's increased willingness to shoot threes um, as a greater preference for risk as the, as the situation dis- dictates. Does this um, preference kind of steadily or linearly increase with the margin and the point of the game, or are there points where it, it kind of increases more sharply than others? Uh, we kind of <clears throat> with it, it. It's not quite linear, it, but we. It would be really when the teams are really far behind, they start chunking like crazy. But most of our analysis, our analysis, we limit to cases where we think the team has at least a five percent chance or greater of winning the game. So basically, games that are still games. And so if you look at those, it's not. There's not like a. There's not one place where there's a big inflection point, but there are a little strange things that happen. So when a team is down by three, they really like to shoot three-pointers because that ties the game, and we think mentally that's, like, easy to attach yourself to. Like, we're down by three. Even if it's the third quarter, say, they're more, a little more likely to shoot a three-ball because mentally it, maybe it's easier to think, we, I just tied the game, or maybe you're the guy that gets written up in the paper, hit the game-tying shot, and then they went on to win, you know. So we see a little bit of some points are a little more important than other points. But generally, as they start losing more and more, they put the put the gas on. And they start they start chunking the ball up there, which is what they should do. So it it sort of seems like, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, teams that might be in a losing situation start to sort of play at the most efficient level, uh, most efficient level that they can. That's right. Well, there's well, this other dynamic we haven't yeah. been talking about here, which is also the teams who are losing just play way harder. 
and this is actually an incredibly strong effect, and in some sense a more important effect than the one we've been talking about, which is that when you're behind, you get pissed off, you play harder, you get a lot more rebounds. We look at some of the best players in the league, guys like Kobe and LeBron, they put the ball on the floor and they just dump the ball a lot more often and sort of do the kinds of painful things because they just get upset. And this is sort of a very strong asymmetric effect and sort of the outcome, this in combination with what we've been talking about, about some leading team sort of tightening up a little bit, you just see a lot more close games in the NBA than you would expect to otherwise. I mean, um, think about the Heat have come back. How many times in this streak they've been down to half nine times or something? That shouldn't mm-hmm. like if games were mm-hmm. if games were sort of kind of random draws, you know, if the, they they couldn't be down nine times and win win all of them. That's really statistically unlikely, but they are. And we find across the league that if you define a variable like this thing hurts, like getting fouled by the basket hurts, or like getting an offensive rebound might be effort taking a charge, Take a, you know, taking a charge, things that hurt. People, mm-hmm. the players do things that hurt more when they're losing. When they're in the losing mentality, they kind of they got a fire lit under them. And we, you know, we don't we don't know why this is, but we think maybe part of what these athletes what gets in that level in the first place is they hate to lose. They when they're losing, they get pissed off, you know, and and they really get motivated. So two things are happening: the losing team is both letting the offense flow, shooting threes. And they're doing the more painful things, and so the the combined effect is they're they're catching up. So that's why you're it's so frustrating to watch when your team's leading, leading out leads. It happens all the time. It seems like it only happens to your team. It's happening to every team. And one thing I really want to talk to you guys about. Um, so so at, at the, this conference that you guys went to, um, if you don't know what it's about, it's. I mean, it's recently gotten a lot more publicity, I guess, over the years. Um, and a lot of basketball minds um, and just sports from all over. Guys like Daryl Morey, for example. I'm, I'm sure he's, he's probably pretty big at that conference. Yeah, he um, organized, helps organize it. So, so um, him and then even in other sports, you go to baseball with like Billy Bean. They're, they're always lauded for the way they use – uh, stats, and it always kind of seems like the, the people who are uh, get credit f- for using these kind of advanced statistics, um, they get a lot of credit, but at the end of the day, uh, it seems like it doesn't always necessarily translate into championships, and I think yeah. people kind of see that and, and say, and, and, and I even kind of look at it and say, well, if it really hasn't translated into actually winning, maybe just some regular season, what's the point? Like, At what point for for this paper specific, uh, not just this paper specifically, because I knew you guys have uh, gotten papers there before. Are people starting to catch on? Because it, it seems like if I'm re- reading that, I, I would try to do everything in my power to to understand it and say, okay, if I'm up in a situation, let's specifically uh, get to my players. If I'm a coach, say, okay, I have this information in the back of my head. Let's. Keep playing. I'll call out certain plays. I'll make sure, do everything in my power not to kind of let the lead slip away or, or get tight. How are people, I guess, taking all this information? So, we, you know, one, one thing, uh, I'll give you a, an anecdote, and that's we, someone approached this at the conference, and they said Manchester United, the famous English soccer team, mm-hmm. when they do scrimmages in practice, they have one team play the other, and they're playing to the five goals. But one team has a bonus assigned to them that no one, no players know. So, like, your team could have plus two goals at the start of the game. 
So when they're playing the game, they don't – you could be up 3-1, but the other team has a bonus. If they score one more goal, they'll win. So even though you're up, you don't actually – basically you just don't know the score. It's a way of making it so you can't really know the score. And the, the coach who came up and told us this, that they did that because they realized guys cared about the scoreboard too much. They were worrying too much about what the score was and not just playing the game. And they introduced this way in practice of, hey, never care about the score because you're playing to a score that you don't know and the other team has a different goal total than you. So I think, at least in that domain, to care about it and the psychology of these NBA players, I think it's important. But to answer your question, you know, how, I, I think it does matter, and it's one of those things where there's a lot of ways to make your team a few percent better, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. But in the NBA especially, what wins you championships, to me, it's having one of three or four guys. And in the end, if you don't have one of those three or four guys, you're fighting to get a few 5% more efficient. You'll be a better team for the money. But unlike, I think, baseball, where you can put together a whole you know, constellation of guys, you need five, four starting pitchers in the playoffs, all these things. Mm-hmm. Here, you need that star player. And so it's actually a little frustrating working in NBA statistics because you tell, like Daryl Morey, for all he's doing – he needs to sign a superstar, right? It's like all, all, he, all he's doing smart, he still knows he needs to sign a superstar. And so I think I, you know, if I worked for them, I'd say, listen, why don't we try and practice scrimmaging in this way that you obscure the score so you get used to playing without knowing the score, so you just play loose and you play the way you know how to play because this effect we see of losing motivates, it basically turns the worst team in the league into the best team in the league. That's how big the effect is. So if you could get rid of that effect, on your team, you'd have a big advantage, but you'd have to take it seriously. Now, if you're the Rockets and do that, will you be better than the Heat? I don't think so, but you'll be better than you are, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think if you want to look at the impressive record analytics has in the NBA, I and mean, you look at like franchises like the Rockets and like the Mavericks um, and, and, and the Spurs and other teams like that who have embraced it to some extent, and while some of these teams haven't been able to win championships, and you certainly can't ascribe championships just to the analytics movement, I mean, they've sort of been continually successful. And I think the Rockets in particular have sort of managed to, to rebuild without doing the sort of the tanking model that so many other teams have embraced. And I think their ability to find sort of good deals, you know, guys on the scrap heap, you know, guys like, like, like Chandler Parsons, um, and recognizing how much value James Harden or Omer Asif has for you know, I think really sort of speaks to the value that analytics have sort of brought to a lot of front offices, even if it doesn't immediately translate into a championship. But hey, guys, what's the um? You know, your mind. What's the next big? I mean, you've uh, you know, Sloan's been going. Is it in its fourth year now, or somewhere around there? Something like that, yeah. For research yeah, what, yeah. Yeah. What's the next big frontier for sports analytics, and, and maybe uh, as it relates to the NBA in specific? You know, I think it's really going to be uh, a lot of this uh, optical tracking data, and for the people, for the listeners that don't know what that is, that's a bunch of, like, infrared-style cameras in the arena that track where every player physically is at all times and the ball, like, 25 Mm -hmm. measurements per second. That Mm -hmm. has been around for two or three years. Matt and I, there's been some interesting stuff done with it, but it hasn't kind of gotten into the box scores yet. Like, a measure that says, like, how close are you to the guy you're guarding when you shoot? Like, I'm a 1.2-foot guy. You're a 4-foot guy. You're a bad defender. Those measures haven't creeped into player valuations, at least on the, you know, some teams might be doing it as a trade secret, but we've never heard them talked about. Uh, we know there's oh, no, startups. Uh, did you see the recent, the Grantland article just a couple of days ago about the yeah, Raptors so that, using this stuff? About the Raptors, yeah, so the, yeah. yeah, the Raptors, exactly. So we, we, it's creeping in. And so, you know, I personally think that data from that optical tracking 
uh, you know, a database will become, there'll be key statistics that we all agree are important that start getting thrown around and we'll learn that some players have been historically overvalued and sort of undervalued, just like with uh, on-base percentage and slugging percentage replacing batting average. We look back at the 70s and we say, man, everyone thought this guy that was striking out a bunch but batting 310 was a star player, but we really would made him as pretty unproductive now. And I think, you know, we can't retrospectively do that because we don't have the data, but I think we'll look at some players like, man, that guy's a huge, that guy's way overvalued, this guy's way undervalued. So I think that's how I personally think it's going to happen. But Matt knows a lot more about this than I do. One of one point uh, they just talking about, I kind of want to touch on a bit. Um, so, from your paper, uh, you guys talked about how teams perform in the clutch, and for yep. and obviously in the NBA, that is a big thing. And and specifically for the Celtics, man, I know you're a Celtics fan. Um, but so Paul Pierce, for example. Um, it was odd and just uh, an anecdote from the Miami game. Jeff Green had 43 points. He's having the best game of his life. He was shooting well from outside, too. Seven seconds left to go, and the Celtics run a play for Paul Pierce and to take a shot because he's the hero. And we hear Doc Rivers talk about this a lot, how he doesn't like to see hero ball. And it's, you get guys like Kobe. And really, I think it really started um, and got big with Michael Jordan, but this idea of hero ball, you guys mentioned in your paper how defenses tend to perform actually a bit worse than offenses in the clutch. I mean, th- there's the old saying how great deep offense will always be the great defense. Is it the case of that just showing that at the end of the game, you're giving it to your best player, and there's a reason he's the best player because he's very, very good regardless of the situation? Exactly what we find in terms of the clutch is what we sort of find is that on average in the NBA, NBA defenses get a little bit better. But basically in these high leverage moments when, you know, one single point is going to really determine who's going to win or lose the game, I think the effort level goes up in the same way that the effort level goes up for teams when they're behind. And when defenses raise their effort level, they get a little bit better on average. But in particular, we find that better defenses get more better. The best defenses in the league actually see a dramatic improvement in high-leverage situations. Oh. I'm actually looking back at some of the Celtics' most recent seasons. I just did this uh, a couple minutes ago. I think if you look at the 07-08 season and basically every season since Kevin Garnett's been there, you see improvements for the Celtics of as much as 15 to 20 points per 100 possessions on the defensive end in these sort of high-leverage situations. I mean, I think this is, I mean, this is common to the best defenses, and it's kind of common across the league. And I think what happens in these high-leverage situations is that it sort of becomes more difficult for players like Jeff Green, who are kind of sort of one-directional drivers, or guys who like to uh, sort of run past defenses. You know, they don't have as many good matchups. The defense is moving their feet more. There's a little bit more effort there. And I think sort of the reason you see hero ball is offenses kind of believe they're not going to be able to get to the paint and get the same kind of high-quality shots they usually get by running an offense. Um, and so as a result, you know, the Celtics tend to resort to a lot of, you know, Paul Pierce, you know, nudging into his defender and stepping back and shooting a three or a two because they know they can always get that shot off. Uh, whether or not that really is a good or a bad idea, you know, I, I have no idea. Um, but that's, that's, that's sort of what we see. I'm not always entirely convinced that guys like Jeff Green or Gerald Wallace, who can be great offensive options uh, for the first 40 minutes of the game, are necessarily the same holds true um, in these sort of high-effort, high-intensity situations at the end of the game. Yeah, and just to add one thing to that is that we see, uh, you know, in the clutch, it's harder to score on average, but – Good offenses get better, 
and good defenses get better. So what we see is sort of the cream rising to the top, and what this what the combined effect is that a good team versus a bad team in the last minute of the game are are worlds apart basically at that point. Like they're a good team is 10% better than a bad team in the second quarter. They're 30% better in the last two minutes. And so that's why you see when your bad team is playing a good team, that's why you're so nervous because you that comeback just kind of happens on you. And, and uh, to a certain extent, it is the the high effort on both sides of the ball. The hero ball is a result of that because those elite – when the defense is trying really hard, you know, I think as Matt says, the, the star players are the ones that can still create shots in that environment, which is why they get – they go to them, and the teams with those star players are the teams that are actually able to maintain or even increase their offensive efficiency, and the teams that don't have those players, yeah, they get a lot worse in those moments. Pretty fascinating. Yeah. Just the, the they just fascinating the gap between the good teams and the bad teams. Um, how, I, I'm very interesting. And when you guys are talking about this 30% difference in this, it's just... It, Ma- massive. Yeah, it's so yeah, big, yeah, it's, and just that's a number that I think is so easy to get your head around when you can could increase productivity by, if you're talking even 10%, that is a huge number than just, okay, you're going to get another point mm-hmm. per 100 possession here. If you're talking about 30 20% just by increasing your effort or playing a different way, that's pretty amazing. Rich, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you know, that's obviously, you know, um, I, I thought that was a great point um, because – you know, the, the casual uh, fan, especially Celtics fan, actually, you know, that's something they can see, they can relate to on a, um, you know, kind of game-by-game basis, how, you know, the Celtics defense, you know, you know rises to the occasion uh, in those cases, whether it's through just the extra effort, uh, better execution. Now, I wonder, you know, with, with, with this, um, you know, it, it increasing uh, focus on analytics and sports, you know, um, any advice for the casual fan out there about how they kind of keep not get intimidated by um, all the advanced statistics that are starting to find their way into the you know, day-to-day discussion of sports. You know, that's a, that's a that's a real good question. Like, you know, one of the things we always struggle with is that if if you went to the website and downloaded our paper, there's a lot of math in there, and it, you know, we went to school for a while, and it's it's we're not trying to <laughs> intimidate, but it's just kind of how we talk. But I think for the casual fan, it's don't be afraid to go to Wikipedia and look up what a standard deviation is or look up what the, you know, what it kind of, how, how the statistics work, you know, don't necessarily take something you see on ESPN as the gospel. I mean, go teach yourself five or 10 minutes of statistics, Wikipedia. These are, these are great resources. If if you read some complicated word, look it up, you know, and I think, I think it's a lot more approachable and then think of the situation. It's a great way to learn statistics. I mean, we have more informed discussions, with sports nuts about statistics and with, with most people, you know? So I think, hey, you know, get engaged and, and you'll learn a little bit. And maybe when you, I don't know, buy car insurance, you'll have a good idea of the risk there too or something. I don't know. No, I think that's a great point. Another great point I would mention is don't just take everything you hear, everything you see in a phone paper or everything you see on a blog post as sort of the gospel truth. You know, I think uh, when people present these sort of staggering conclusions from their research, you know, it just sort of makes sense how they came to that. And there's sort of nothing magic that goes on in economic or any other kind of research that lets people sort of learn things from, from, from data in kind of a magical way. And that even if you don't understand every word or every concept or every, you know, piece of terminology in a paper, you know, you should still be able to sit there and think, you know, does this paper make sense? And is it really, do I believe that they were able to look at the data and learn what they were telling me they learned? So. Uh, th- really do appreciate your time today, guys. Uh, I-, I know... 
probably pretty busy. Uh, but before we let you go, though, do you have any other projects coming up? We, uh, well, in terms of, you know, we, we always try to get in gear for the Sloan Conference in November. We kind of scramble things together. Uh, one of the, the thoughts we were having for next year was uh, getting involved with some Twitter data to see how fans, like we've studied kind of decisions we think are good decisions and bad decisions based on the statistics. And we're trying to maybe look at the, the fandom out there and see where the fans' beliefs are to kind of get a measure of, hey, what, what does the average guy think? What do the sportscasters think? Things like that to see the, the kind of reaction environment. Because I think a lot That's of the Twitter, this, the talk radio, too. Talk radio, all, all, all you guys. So we're, we're going to try to measure the public opinion on uh, yeah. controversial decisions. Oh, and then and then the question then is next week, do the teams pay attention, right? If you guys, you jump on the Celtics to do an X or Y, how do they react? And then what does that say about the Celtics organization, if they're really susceptible or not so susceptible to, to whatever it is you guys happen to be saying? That's really, that's really really interesting. And before I let you go, I mean, you, you guys brought up this uh, Manchester United thing. Big soccer guy, produced soccer show at Sirius XM. Uh, interesting thing that the Seattle Sounders did. And they're just uh, one of the newest MLS teams as founded, but they have uh, given their fans a, a lot of say. Every four years, they can elect and vote to uh, to fire the GM if they want to. Yeah, yeah. So that would be, that's really interesting. I think that's maybe the most extreme example that I can think of in America, where where fans have do have a lot of say that that you're part of, kind of part of the team. And I don't know if any other leagues would adopt that but thanks to you guys and and, and people um who, who also present papers and are really pushing these numbers fans like us we can understand uh to a certain extent and is we can't we can go beyond just complaining about uh a bad shot we can say why it's a bad shot so yeah you, you guys are really advancing the sports discussion appreciate it a lot um, again, thank you for your time. Really do appreciate it. And uh, do you guys, if you guys are on Twitter, um, we'll give you a moment here just to shout out uh, your handle so people can give you a follow. Sure. I'm uh, at Justin M. Rao. That's R-A-O. And uh, at Matt R. Goldman, uh, G-O-L-D-M-A-N. All right. Well, you guys are always welcome on CLNS Radio, any show, especially ours. Um, if you ever come across anything uh, – Interesting. Uh, lo- we'd love to keep up on what you guys are doing. So thanks again for joining Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And uh, it was Definitely. a really great conversation. Man, I appreciate awesome. it. Man, I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Later. That was Justin Rowe and also Matt Goldman, two guys who wrote Live by the Three, Die by the Three, The Price of Risk in the NBA. It was just a fascinating conversation. And Rich and I will talk a little bit more about that when we come back and also look ahead to the Celtics that they try to get back to you. Right back to Stay tuned for more of the Celtics.
Hey, it's Coach Kevin from Superfans.com. Superfans shirt. Superfans has Boston's best t-shirts. Uppercase B's for the adults and lowercase B's for the kids. You see our street hustlers at your favorite event or you shop with us at Superfans.com. At Superfans, we're just like you. We take pride in our town and support the best our teams have to offer. Listen to your New England soul. Visit Superfans.com and say hello next time you see us around town. We make Boston's best t-shirts for New England's best fans. Superfans! Superfans is a proud sponsor of Dirty Water TV. We're back on the Celtics Beach. Daniel Baker alongside Rich Conti just had a great conversation about basketball numbers, how those two uh, kind of intertwined with Justin Rowe and Matt Goldman, two guys, two brilliant minds who wrote a great paper on just kind of risk-reward in the NBA. Uh, obviously, that's a big player in the economy and just all walks of life, but really starting to make its way into the sports discussion. What really stood out to you in that conversation, Rich? Love, love, love talking to those guys. Um, you know, one thing that um, a mentor of mine uh, told me in my um, uh, my professional life was if you can't explain something very simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I thought that was really the most um, um, interesting part about the conversation with those guys. Clearly some, some very um, heavy analytical um, uh, research they were doing, but just a way of being able to explain it and put it in extremely simple terms and use great analogies like the stock market or Vegas um, just really kind of brought the topic to life. And it was really nice to hear because it's not the end-all, be-all. It's, it's never 100% clear. That's the best part about sports. There's always that gray area, room for interpretation, so to speak. Um, like when I was brought up about just if, for example, take the Heat, we have James and Wade. Like, I don't ever necessarily want taking threes. I want them always to be shooting certain shots. And for the Celtics in clutch situations, when you have Paul Peters kind of playing hero ball, and just how many times it works, how many times it doesn't. Because, really, I thought it was a little frustrating against the Heat because that was just another time uh, in recent memory that Pierce, oh, against New Orleans late game situation, they kind of tried to do the same thing, and he came up a bit short. And that's just two games in a row. Why not run your most efficient play, so to speak? Um, but it's it just r- really a uh, really cool dynamic because um, we see a lot of big comebacks. I mean, we saw the Heat during their win streak comeback all the times. We've seen the Celtics. Everybody remembers way back when they played uh, um the Lakers back in the finals when they won it all most recently and the uh, the big comeback the Celtics had, down 24, it's just really interesting. But looking forward for the Celtics, as this is the Celtics beat, and definitely give us a follow on Twitter at Celtics underscore beat. Uh, looking forward for the Celtics, four losses in a row. It's another week and a really big week, especially for the division. Two games between now and next Sunday against the Knicks. And the first one at home on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Make sure to check out the CLNS postgame show for that game as well. But that could be a really big game because the Knicks just got Carmelo Anthony back and they're starting to play a little bit better. They were pretty much uh, on the same downslope the Celtics are right now. What, what do you see for the Celtics looking ahead to this Knicks game on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, this is a big week, um, you know, t- two against the Knicks. I think this week is really going to tell the story for the rest of the season. I think if they come out of this week with, 
you know, um, you know, with three wins, I think um, they've got a good shot at winning somewhere, you know, 45, 46, 47 games and kind of being right there in the running, certainly for fifth and six, fifth or sixth seed. And, you know, depending on what happens um, with a team like Brooklyn, maybe even as high as, as the fourth. Um, Knicks are playing better. Um, you know, I think if the Celtics bring their A game, I think they, again, match up well, um, you know, with – uh, the Knicks in particular, I think, um, you know, to me, the, the, the most important player on the Knicks is uh, Tyson Chandler. I think when he's in there healthy, playing well, I think then they've got a puncher's chance against anybody. Um, when he's not, uh, you know, they're just basically a classic, uh, you know, um, live by the three, die by the three, I guess. Of, uh, <laughs> maybe that, maybe uh, they just need to have in their minds that, that, that they're down. I mean, I love that idea. Uh, that Manchester United uses in that scrimmage that don't tell them the score because especially in the NBA, there's all that score we're watching. There's the theories of the the two-for-one situations, about 36 seconds left or so. Just take a quick shot because you know you're going to get the ball back. Uh, And just, is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? I'm sure there's many papers and many articles on that. And you mentioned about the Celtics climbing the standings. Right now, they're seventh. They're Six and a half games behind New York for the two seed, so they can make up some ground with a good week this week. They are one and a half games behind Chicago for the six seed, two and a half Atlanta for the five seed, and all the way up at that fourth seed where the Brooklyn Nets are, they're four games back. But right now, they've lost four in a row, and after the Knicks, they will travel to Cleveland, return home against Atlanta, and then travel to the Knicks for the four games this week. And if you want to see where they're stacking up, they've fallen a little bit in my power rankings. I'll put that out tomorrow, mid-early afternoon. So keep a lookout for that. Um, And this whole live by three, die by the three, it just got me thinking about the Celtics and how they're constructed. They are a jump-shooting team and a team with a lot of players that really rely on the three-ball and I think if the Celtics are going to go anywhere, they're going to need to shoot really, really well in the playoffs regardless. I mean, they have a lot of guys who can shoot the three. But really, I mean, Pierce is at 38%. It's not bad, but that really can't be the guy who's leading the team in three-point percentage for a shooting team like the Celtics. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you look at a guy like Jeff Green, and, you know, obviously he had a great game uh, against Miami uh, last week. But, it, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, um, He's kind of the, the the type of player the Celtics need more of. Yeah, um, you know, you mentioned their jump shooting team, and and yeah, they do have a lot of guys who can shoot threes. But I think actually they take more mid range and long twos than pretty much any team in the league. And in a lot of ways, that's the least efficient shot. You know, all else being equal in the NBA, and that's why getting a guy in there like Green who can can balance that out, um, where you know almost all of his chances either come right at the rim you know, on some of those drives to the basket or, mm-hmm. you know, from from three-point land. Hey, you know, look at the way Denver is playing right now. And if you look at the numbers, um, all Denver does is either shoot threes or take shots at the rim. They take the fewest twos, uh, you know, outside the paint of any team in the league. And, and that's just, you know, a really efficient offense. Houston plays almost exactly the same way. And the Celtics, you know, are starting to get more of those guys. You know, Courtney Lee, I think, is the same type of player. He's got a little bit of a mid-range game, but he's, he's he's great at that corner three, which is, you know, probably the most efficient shot at the game, and, and, yes. and he can flash. And you know, I'd like to see the offense more tilted toward both of those guys because I think that's that's the direction the NBA is going. You know, 
not to take away the seventeen footer is always a great shot, but gotta get a little bit more balance in there. Not to take away from what Jason Terry brings to the table. We just got a couple minutes left here, but so many times I can't tell you how many times I just watch him on a fast break and pull up for that mid range jumper. He hits it a fair amount of time, but that's I would rather see him take it to the hole. I mean, you mentioned the Nuggets. They are the second hottest team in the NBA right now, 15 straight, and they have vaulted up to that third spot in the Western Conference. They've beaten Oklahoma City twice during this run, and that, as you mentioned, may be the most efficient team in basketball. Zach Lowe wrote a great article about just how good they've been playing on offense and defense uh, of late, and that's on Grantland. Definitely give that a read. If you're interested in the NBA, if you're interested in what the Nuggets are doing as they vault up to the Western Conference. And the Celtics in the East have a lot of ground to make up, trying to climb these playoff rankings as the season winds down. We'll see what they can do. Going to need aggressive Jeff Green. And after the Miami game, that was one of the main things he said, is just that he knows it, that when he plays aggressive, He's a lot better, and maybe he doesn't necessarily play that all the time, and that's not his demeanor off the court, but when he's on the court, the Celtics really need him to, to ratchet up a notch. Any closing thoughts, Rich? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be health for the Celtics. Health and, and having some some fresh legs, and, you know, um, while it would be really great to, you know, get up to the four seed and get home court advantage, that's kind of a long shot right now, and, you know, whether they fall fifth, sixth, seventh, Heck, even eighth, I don't think it really matters to the team um, because I think they feel like when, when they're playing their game, they can match up with anybody. And if you're going to, you know, get to the finals, you need to go through Miami at some point, and so why not the first round? So I don't think, you know, the, the, the seeding is too much the issue. I think going in to the playoffs with a healthy, you know, mentally and physically fresh team is really going to be the key. All right, that'll do it for us. Thanks for listening to the Celtics Beat. Catch you next week.